Hello again. Welcome to Tell Me. On today's episode of Tell Me, I am talking to Taylor Jenkins Reid, huge fan of Taylor and her writing. She's written so many books, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Malibu Rising, Daisy Jones and the Six, which is being adapted into a series right now. We talked about so many things. We have a lot in common. We're both from Massachusetts. We love Los Angeles. We also love houses and the history of houses in Los Angeles. This was such a fun conversation, and I hope you like this episode of Tell Me. Taylor Jenkins Reid, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Of course, I'm a big fan, as is my daughter. That makes me so happy. It's funny <laughs> because we have a lot in common, by the way, you and I. Yes, we do. We were both raised in Massachusetts. Yeah. We both love Malibu. Oh, yes. <laughs> Where in Boston are you from? I am from a town 45 minutes outside of Boston called Acton, which, oddly enough, you interviewed one of my high school classmates not long ago, Maria Konnikova. Oh, yes. Yes, Maria Konnikova and I went to high school together. We graduated the same year. We have a lot of friends in common. I love Maria and I'm just so impressed with her. I love her too. And I love that book. Yes. I love Russian women. <laughs> They're just so ballsy. Yes. They just sort of say, you know, what's on their mind. Oh, absolutely. My in-laws emigrated from Russia and Eastern Europe a long time ago. But when my daughter was born, she had the roundest face and just the biggest cheeks. And we would go into like a grocery store and rush Russian women would come up and they'd be like, that baby is Russian. And we're like, I mean, I think like generations ago, and they're like, no, with that face, that baby is Russian. She's ours. And I was like, okay, great. I mean, who doesn't want somebody coming up and just loving on your baby? It's true. There's a lot of mysticism to these old heritages, whatever they are, you know, whether it's Sicilian women or the old Irish women, they just have so much sort of mysticism built in yes. to the way they think and the way they approach things, and especially the way they approach babies. That's right. I also feel like in Malibu Rising, there's a character, and I've listened to you talk about this, and I don't want to talk about the books too much because for anyone who hasn't read Taylor's books, you definitely have to start reading them. There's a couple of them being made into series right now. But in Malibu Rising, there's a character, the youngest, who's sort of a lot like me. And I've heard you talk about, you know, in families, every child has their sort of place. And I'm definitely that young one who says it, mm. who's just like, no, I say what everybody else is thinking, but won't actually say. And yes. I don't have the same trauma that my siblings have from losing our mother. I have a different experience. Mm -hmm. And there's something really real about that that in families when children have trauma, the age that you are when that trauma happens really informs who you are in your personality. And so I love that character and just read Malibu Rising. I'm not going to give anything else away. <laughs> well, I will say this. One of the things that guided me, and I'm an oldest sister, is that sort of cliche that you can all be siblings and you grow up in the same house, but you all had different childhoods. And I think depending on what age you enter the family, how old you are when certain things happen, you're affected by them in a different way, for better or worse. There's not one 
position to be in in a family that's the best one to be, but they all come with their own burdens and their own joys that are unique. And I think that's what is interesting about the Riva family is you've got four very different kids who lived in the same house, but experienced it differently. And that was a joy to write about. Yeah. The other thing that I love about your books, what first struck me was that you write from what I've read takes place in Los Angeles. The books that I've read. Yes. Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Malibu Rising and Daisy Jones. Mm -hmm. They all take place in Los Angeles. And the reason I love that is because I'm raising kids in Los Angeles. And as we know, L.A. is in crisis right now. Homeless people everywhere, mental illness, crime, you know, we're really going through it. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day who was watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And he said, you know, I really feel for people who are watching these shows because there's no trace of what L.A. really looks like right now. And these poor people who spend all their money on a vacation to come to Los Angeles, they must be like, what the fuck mm -hmm. is actually going on? Because you're not seeing what L.A. really looks like right now. And it's such false advertising if people watch the Kardashians. Yes. And Real Housewives. Yeah, I mean... I have a very complicated relationship with Los Angeles in that, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts. I would imagine as a, I was going to use the term that we use for people from Massachusetts, but I won't. <laughs> a Massachusetts in, we'll say. Okay. You hear about Los Angeles and you think, oh my God, it doesn't snow there and it's warm all the time and there are palm trees everywhere and famous people and everybody's beautiful and everything's glamorous. And I remember as a kid just being so in love with that idea. And then I was watching the movie Pretty Woman with my mom. I must have been a teenager. And I was like, if she lives in Hollywood, why does it look like not a nice area? And my mom was like, oh, well, Hollywood is an idea, but it's also a place. There's a place called Hollywood and it's not very nice anymore. And I just could not possibly reconcile those two ideas. And that was in the 80s. That was in the 80s, right. <laughs> you know, and look, I moved out here with, you know, 500 bucks and a car that barely worked when I was 21 years old, you know, and a very vague dream. And I moved here because I could not let go of the myth. I couldn't let go of it. It seemed so real to me. And then I moved here and I was in a terrible apartment in a not good part of town and my car barely worked and I had no friends. And it was like, oh no, what have I done? And it wasn't until I got a job in casting. That was my first job out of high school was I worked in a casting office. And so every day I would drive from the Valley and I'd go to Larchmont. And eventually I got my own desk. It wasn't even a real desk. It was like a counter against the window, but they'd found room for me. And it's my first day of work. And I look out the window and right out the window was the Hollywood sign. And I thought, okay, there is a little bit of that magic here. I feel that magic. So it's both to me. It is 100% a lie. And yet I can't deny that a little bit of it is true. And that's why I keep writing about it. Because to me, when something is both true and false at the same time, I am going to interrogate that until I can make sense of it over and over in any form that I can. I love that. My experiences with moving here is a little bit different, but I do have pieces of that same magic. I moved from Miami to New York City. And then in New York, at that time, there was only so much you could do as an actor if you didn't want to do theater. And so the idea of theater didn't really appeal to me. And I had done all I could do, or as I was told, in New York City, and it was time to make the 
leap to LA. But I was such an East Coast growing up in Boston, really close proximity to the city. And I grew up in Everett. Mm -hmm. And so my first few trips out to Los Angeles, I had been sort of flown out to test for things. And it just seemed like a suburb to me. It was just like, where are the people? I don't see anyone walking on the sidewalks. There's no sort of public transportation. Like, I didn't see anyone walking on the sidewalks. I had been to California when I was young as a kid going to Universal Studios and things. So as an adult, I was like, this place looks horrible. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to live there at all. And then ultimately it came time where I did as much as I could do in New York. I had to make the leap. And I was couch surfing. I lived with my friend Dash Mihawk. And then I had to move out. And I had this room in this woman's house, this old, old woman. And she lived up by the Hollywood sign. I had no kitchen. I just had one room and a bathroom. But I loved the room because, A, I could afford it. (laughs) (laughs) And it had this little balcony with jasmine growing on it. And I was like, okay, well, I can open the doors and right out of the balcony was the Hollywood sign. It was like literally right there. And I was like, well, if I have to sleep on a piece of foam (laughs) and have no fridge, I might as well be staring at this sign and use it as inspiration. I mean, that's exactly what it is, right? Is so many of us, and it is a select group of people that come from different areas of the country and choose to move to Los Angeles in search of a dream, whether it's that you're an actress or a writer or a director or, you know, whatever it is. And it's absolutely terrible. And it's nothing like you think it's going to be. And it's really, really hard. And Los Angeles has all the things that you're talking about in terms of we have a really serious issue taking care of our people. We have big, big challenges ahead of us. You know, just the transportation issues in the city alone. And yet at the same time, I think there are moments when I am standing on the shore in Malibu looking at the immense Santa Monica Mountains and I think, God, there's no place better than this. It is both. And that, I think, is the story of Los Angeles to me, is being hard on it and hoping that we make it better and being realistic about the issues and at the same time allowing, you know, a little bit of that magic in. Yeah, well, we definitely have a legacy, right? I mean, Los Angeles and Hollywood is part of the fabric of the United States and what helped to build the United States be what it is, the movie business. So we really owe it to our legacy as a country to sort of clean it up and get it back on track. I mean, culture has been one of America's greatest exports. And a lot of that is made here in Los Angeles, whether it's TV, movies, music. And I'm very proud of that. I think it's just a tough time to be an American right now and to find what America means. But I find myself in this period of time in which all of our ideas about America are changing, or perhaps we're becoming more aware of what America always was. I find myself surprised at how attached I am to America's cultural power. It's just something that I grew up with of like, oh, America, our TV shows are the best. Our music is the best. And you realize that American exceptionalism that you're taught is like, no, there are a lot of other people making great art that we just haven't been paying attention to, which is kind of exciting about right now when you start to see how much great stuff is coming out of other countries that we haven't been paying attention to until now. Yeah. So my daughter is an avid reader. And, you know, the books that are for her age group she really had devoured them all at 10 years old. So she got to your books by the age of 12. And I'm so glad that she found them because she introduced me to them. And we have so much to talk about when we read them together. 
And, you know, it's a good frame of reference because she's growing up in a Los Angeles where she's seeing people sleeping all over the streets. Yeah. So for her to have this window into, and she hasn't yet, you know, watched Pretty Woman in some of these other movies, Mm -hmm. but to have this window into the Gilded Age of Hollywood Mm -hmm. or Malibu in the 80s or whatever it is, it's giving a real context to the city that she lives in. Because there's a lot you could say about Los Angeles. There's a lot you could say about raising kids in a city like this. Yes. But your writing and your books have put a really positive spin on everything and given it all context and the history and the story's context in a way that's relatable and fun and magical for her. And so I thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. That makes me really, really happy. I really do love Los Angeles. And look, when I had my daughter, there was like a six-month period of time from when she was born until she was about six months old where I thought, I got to get out of here. I got to take her back home. You know, I want her to go to the school that I went to that I know is a good school. And I want her to be surrounded with the people that I grew up with who I know to be good people, you know, because Los Angeles is just really big. And I think your world when you're little can benefit you greatly if it stays small and manageable. And I just really felt like, oh, I got to get her back to Massachusetts. And look, some of my best friends stayed in Massachusetts. They live in my hometown and they're raising kids there. And I romanticize a lot of the things they're able to give their kids in a small town. But I looked at it and I said, you know, I want my daughter to meet a lot of different people. And I want her to be exposed to people that are really, really different than her. And to learn about the world that we have an obligation to participate and contribute to the world around us, even when we don't understand it or those people are completely different. Los Angeles provides me that opportunity. My daughter is surrounded by a lot of different people, different family structures, different races, different socioeconomic. And she's going to be exposed to things that she just wouldn't back in Acton, Massachusetts. And ultimately, that's why I decided to stay. Los Angeles can be a really beautiful place. And the ways in which it is not beautiful and the things that we need to do to fix it She needs to know about that because as much as it's my responsibility to help fix those things, it's soon going to be her responsibility to do that too. So it makes me happy to think of your daughter sitting and reading about these times that came before her and the history of these neighborhoods and understanding In Los Angeles, we don't really have a sense of history as much. Our history is very short here. In Boston, it's much longer. But this is the history that we have. And it's important to think about, you know, the times that came before us and where we stand in that line. Because it's not just about us, right? We're one of a long line of people. It's true. So the first book that Stella read was Seven Husbands. And that character, you learn pretty quickly that she's a biracial woman. I was thrilled. That was the first book that my daughter read of yours that she introduced me to. And I was like, yes, go Taylor. And now to meet you and see that you are not biracial. No. And you made that choice as a character. So thank you for that, Taylor. Well, thank you. And I'm glad that it meant something to your daughter. It's something that I really struggle with and something I still don't find any defense definitive answers for because I think there are people that will tell you they read that and love that I did that. And I think there are people that read it and say I had no right to do that. And I listen to both sides. And as a white person, especially as a white person creating content for people to read, specifically women, I take it very seriously that I want to be inclusive of all people. And I don't want to just tell stories about white women. But that puts a responsibility on me to get it right. And that doesn't mean that I got it right just because I tried. And so I'm very open to that. So it means a lot to me 
to hear, especially when it comes to like a 12 year old girl looking to find, you know, herself in the world. Like, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Yes. And people are certainly entitled to feel however they want. We don't know what it's like to walk in the shoes of a black woman or biracial woman. So that point is well said and well taken. But being a white mother to a black daughter, she absolutely loved that. And I loved that she found so much joy in it. And knowing that you were white and wrote that character for someone that looks like her, specifically biracial, gave her so much a feeling of just being seen. Yeah. So there are benefits to all sides and to listening to each other and keeping our hearts open and minds open and understanding that everyone can have their own perspective and that's okay. Yeah. Thank you for telling me that story because I'm telling you when I sat down to write the book, you know, you hope that just one person might get that feeling. And honestly, people that read my books, maybe they pick up on it, maybe they don't, maybe I've gotten it right, maybe I haven't. But my intention which, you know, ultimately impact is the most important thing. But my intention is I'm always trying to look at the people around me, the women that I love, and say, how can I show you that I see you? How can I represent you here so that if anybody gives you a hard time about it, you know there's at least one fictional person that's like you. There are Black women in my life. There are biracial women in my life. There are bisexual women in my life who I love with my whole heart. And I want to make sure that what I'm doing is giving them one more person who's got their back. You know, there's a character in the book, Daisy Jones, who has known her whole life. She doesn't want to be a mom. And I specifically put that in because I have a friend who she's just known it. She's known it her whole life. And everybody is just always telling her she's going to change her mind one day. And I thought, there's nothing I can do. I can't stop those people from doing that to her. But what I can do is write a story about a woman like that. And put the idea in some people's minds, hey, maybe not all women want to be moms and maybe they know better than you what they want. And maybe one person changes their mind or five people, you know, get the gears turning at least in that process of changing their mind. Ultimately, there's a lot of reasons why I do what I do. But ultimately, if I'm not doing that, I think I'm wasting my time. Yeah, I agree. And we used to do that a lot on Grays. Grays was so amazing for that reason. And Shonda was so great at doing that. And she wrote the character of Christina Yang, who chose to have an abortion Mm -hmm. and who didn't want to be a parent and made these very deliberate choices. You know, the other thing that you guys did on Grey's that was really impactful for me was the relationship between Meredith and Christina and how much they needed each other and the bond that they had and the fact that it was something that was celebrated and talked about It's not that we didn't talk about female friendships before that show. We did. But I do think you guys put forward a type of relationship where other women could be like, oh, that's like me and my friend. And it makes it easier to talk about that. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of relationships in your life and romantic relationships are really important. And that can be how you build a family if that's what you choose to do or your life partner or whatever. But also the women standing next to you or the best friendships that you have can change your life. They can make you who you are. And a lot of my work is not just about, you know, okay, here's my goal. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm falling in love with. It's also who's the person standing beside me all the time who is there for me regardless of how ugly things get or messy or the ways that I mess up. And you look at The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, 
And the relationship between Evelyn and Harry Cameron is it's a complicated one, but ultimately it's based on that thing of just it feels good to love someone in that way that maybe it's not romantic, but it is forever. I don't know that I would have embraced that as a storyline the way that I have through multiple books if it wasn't for Meredith Christina, I have to say. I think it was pretty seminal for me. Also, your book reminds me, so I live in this great Paul Williams house. Oh, my God. Okay. I did not know that. You can come over anytime you want. Please. I am so obsessed with him. I'm really into Los Angeles architecture. This is like a thing of mine. And I have studied Paul Williams and I'm like convinced like somebody needs to make a movie about Paul Williams. I need that for myself. Like there should be a biopic about him. I'm obsessed with him. I'm so jealous you have one of his houses. I am absolutely coming over to see it. You absolutely should. Let's do it. Let's do the biopic. (laughs) So it's a great story, actually. So we'd been looking for a house and we saw this house online and it said where it was and it was listed wrong. We thought it was in the wrong area. And I said, to Chris, I don't want to go see that house because I don't think it's close enough to my job and I need to be close to work. Mm-hmm. I said, I really think we should go see it. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And one morning, Katie Heigl came into work and we were sitting in our chairs talking and we were both house hunting. And she said, you know, I saw this really great house yesterday. It's too big of a project for me, but you love projects and you would love it because I love renovating houses. And she started describing it. And I said, oh my goodness, I've seen that house. And it was the house that Chris has been trying to get me to see for literally like three months it was on the market. So I make an appointment to come see this house and I get a phone call from my best friend, Patrice, who I grew up with in Boston. Hi, Patrice. And she calls me up and she says, I had a dream. Are you going to see a house soon? And I said, I am. And she said, does the house have a green kitchen and two staircases? And I said, it does. And it was the original kitchen from the 20s. So it was that weird, sea foamy green. Yes. That color everywhere, like the tile, the stove, everything Mm -hmm. was that weird, sea foamy green. She said, there's two ovens in the kitchen and there's two staircases. And I said, I know from the picture there are two staircases and I know that there are two ovens. So she said, it's a really good house. So I come to look at the house and I said, you know, what's the story of the house? It was a house built for a silent film star named Antonio Moreno Jr., And that's all I knew about the house. And it was kind of like a museum. There were sort of old pictures of him everywhere. And the house remained exactly as it had been, right? Mm -hmm. Completely intact. Never had anything done to it. Wasn't remodeled. Also wasn't maintained. You know, it was a relic for sure. And it had to be completely redone. But when I went to go pull permits for the house, there was no record of the house existing. There's got to be a record of this house. So in tearing down all of those old trees, I found a plaque on the back of the house with a different address. Oh. And I was like, what's that address? Yeah. And then it came up as a Paul Williams house. Oh, my God. You know, thank God, because it would have been more expensive and everything. So then I started sort of researching and digging. And as it turns out, Sorry if this is boring for anyone listening who's not into Los Angeles architecture. (laughs) I am like on the edge of my seat. Clearly, we share this passion. Yeah. So Antonio Moreno Jr. was married to a woman named Daisy Canfield. Daisy Canfield was an oil heiress. Okay. And she was kind of like an Evelyn Hugo. Yeah. Well, she's got a great name, I was going to say. Daisy Canfield is like, I wish I could make up that name. It's so good. Yeah. And she married Antonio Moreno Jr. They got a divorce in the 20s, which was, you know, very, very scandalous. So Paul Williams had built their marital home. 
Then, as Hollywood folklore would have it, she took up with either the cook or the butler. Oh. Then Antonio Moreno commissioned Paul Williams to build his bachelor home. Okay. Which was this house. Then she mysteriously drove off Mulholland and died. But also, again, there were stories that the cook and the butler were actually together and that they were just using her as a beard and that they killed her and threw her off the side of Mulholland. You know, who knows? This is real Sophie. I know. It's like Evelyn Hugo, right? Yeah, it is. And so I had made up this story in my mind because it was really kind of crazy the way they lived back then and the way they built these really big houses. This house is really big and it's really majestic and beautiful. And so I think originally they meant to have the front door at the back of the house. I think they flipped. Oh, I see. Okay. And I think they would have had to put too many stairs up to the front door because it's on a hill. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting is they didn't do any gardens. And it was almost as if the house was kind of unfinished. Like the house itself was finished, but there's quite a lot of land here that nothing was ever done to. Mm -hmm. There was no fountains, pool, which kind of struck me as a bit odd. And I thought, well, at that time in 1929, they would have started talking pictures. Mm -hmm. And Antonio Moreno probably had a very thick accent. And I think he was a rival of Valentino's. Okay. And I think Valentino's accent was more subtle. Mm -hmm. And so they needed a dark haired, you know, olive skin movie star. Yeah. They would have hired Valentino and given him a shot. And I told myself the story that Antonio Moreno didn't work as much. And maybe he didn't get a good deal from the oil heiress wife <laughs> and wasn't able to like finish the gardens around the house because it was like this beautifully majestic house, but kind of just on a lot of dirt. Mm -hmm. It felt unfinished to me. And that's the story around this oh, house. Oh, man. <laughs> that is so incredible. And part of what I think is so great about Paul Williams is, one, his work is incredible. And for people that don't know that much about him, he designed a lot of celebrity homes in Los Angeles, almost exclusively for white people. But he was a black man. And he often was put in the position to have to build homes in neighborhoods that he would not be allowed to buy a home in. That he was that talented that he could thrive and raise to the level that he did during a period of time in which, you know, we did not value him the way that we should have is really impressive. But then I don't know if you know this, but there was a fire near his office, like I want to say in the 90s. And all of his records were burned. Really? So I thought you were going to say that the reason you couldn't find any records about the house was because a lot of the records of what he had done, like his blueprints and everything, were burned. So you can't find them. But I feel like if that hadn't happened, you might have more information about your house because he had records of every house he did. He had the blueprints. He had the correspondence about them. Like there could have been a treasure trove of information for you about your house. But unfortunately, it was all burned. Oh, I didn't know that. But also I had heard that to your point about he was building homes in neighborhoods he wasn't even allowed to own a home in. I had also heard that he had to learn how to sketch upside down. Yes. Because he was not allowed to stand on the same side of the table as his white clients. So he had to stand on the other side of the table. I mean, how fucked up? I mean, ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous, but it also just speaks to, and it's part of what I am interested in writing about is that when the situation is, as you say, just completely fucked, which is the situation that he was in, how do people respond to it? And he shouldn't have had to learn how to sketch upside down. In no way is this a happy story because it shouldn't have happened at all. But that fortitude and that talent to master that in the face of the world that he was occupying 
Like, what a talent. Just what a talent. It's true. And he's done some of the most impressive in historical buildings here in Los Angeles. He did the Saks Fifth Avenue building on Wilshire, the Beverly Hills Hotel. I believe the front of the Beverly Hills Hotel, what we know as the front of it, that is his handwriting. Ah. He wrote Beverly Hills Hotel. The logo for it, I believe, is his handwriting. Really? That's what I had read. I should double check before I go telling lies, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Amazing. Anyway, I love the fact that I live in a Paul Williams and I'll have to come and visit it someday. I would love to. I mean it when I say I think at some point we're going to see a Paul Williams biopic. I really think he's such an interesting story with such glamour. I'm a big Lucille Ball fan and he had designed one of Lucy and Desi's houses back in the day. And that's how I was like, well, who is this? And then I just fell in love. When I was young, after my mother died, my dad took me and one of my sisters to California, took us on a trip to Disneyland and to Universal. And I'll never forget, we were on one of those tour buses and we drove by Lucille Ball's house Mm -hmm. and she was out on the porch waving. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, now when I drive around L.A., like I tell my daughter, like back in the day, they actually used to come out to wave at the tour buses. Like now if I'm in my car and like a tour bus pulls up (laughs) next to me, I'm literally like ducking under the seat trying to drive, like trying to hide from the TMZ buses. But it is a different world. It is. Right? It is. Being famous today is nothing like being famous in the 50s and 60s, you know, and people's ownership over you is very different. I think people feel much more entitled to stars now. Stars are just like us. Like That's very much a modern idea. What I love about escaping into the Hollywood of the 50s and 60s is like, oh no, they're nothing like us. They have no obligation yeah. to be like us. Those are the people that live on Mount <laughs> Olympus and will never touch them. And just being waved at is enough. That's the Hollywood that I like to pretend I'm in in my brain. Yeah, the expectations. Yeah, that's the thing. I think it's really tough and I'm sure it's tough for kids to understand, but we've just completely blurred the lines between entertainment in reality, you know, that's the way that we're pushing things forward so that it's not just that you exist on their TV, it's that you're through their phone and their friends are also on their phone. And it becomes really, really hard, I think, for anyone now to really process that you don't know the person that it feels like you know and that there's no actual relationship or obligation there. I think it's getting harder and harder for people to understand as we continue to break down these lines between different forms of entertainment. We feel closer and closer to these people. I'm looking at it much less from a place of judgment and more from a place of curiosity of where does this path take us, right? Because we've had a lot of instances lately where a celebrity will do something and just a wide swath of fandom will feel personally slighted or personally invested when they don't know them. And it's a fascinating part of the human psyche that, you know, I do too. You know, I legitimately, I watched Friends so much when I was a teenager that there was a part of me that's like, where's Rachel? Like, where's Monica? (laughs) You know, so I get it. It's tough for people to understand and it's tough for kids to understand. Yeah. And I try to tell my daughter, the thing I say the most to her, I think, is try to learn not to take things personally. Yeah. It's what's going to cause you the greatest amount of pain, right? Is if you think someone did something to you 
you, your heart is just crushed, like yeah. someone's stomping on your heart. But it's not as easy to get to that place. Yeah. It's easier for me to say than it is for a 12-year-old to put it into practice. Yeah. But I do think telling her now means she's much more likely to have figured it out by the time she gets to be an adult than people that aren't told that. And that's kind of what I often tell myself with my daughter is like, it's her journey to figure this out. But how great that I have the opportunity to be just like chirping in her ear to put her on that journey if I can. For sure. Yeah. I listened to your interview about Malibu Rising and the history of Malibu and how Malibu was started. I loved hearing that little piece of history because I do walk along the beach in Malibu and there's some really great stories there about stuff that exists. Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to ask you is now that so many of your books are being turned into series, and I actually mentor a young woman who's going to be in Daisy Jones. Oh. I'm so happy for her. That's great. Yeah. I was really excited because these young actors, I felt so bad for them during COVID. It's tough. Auditioning yeah. online and through the computer and then there was nothing being made. And this is like her first great gig in a while. So I'm really excited for her. But how do you feel? Because you make this thing, mm -hmm. you create this thing in your mind and then you put it on paper and then you have to sort of give it away mm -hmm. to some extent. And how do you deal with that? It's really hard. I bet. <laughs> and it's also really, really exciting and really fun. I mean, part of the thing that we've been talking about, right, is that I moved out to Los Angeles because I wanted to work in Hollywood. I've been in love with Hollywood. And books were this thing that I sort of found along the way as life is what happens when you're busy making other plans is very much the story of my career because I was working in casting. I was thinking I want to do something slightly different. And then I just sort of accidentally started writing prose and fell in love with it and thought, oh, my gosh, this is it. This is what I meant to do. So to follow that path and then in a roundabout way, now Hollywood's Come Calling is so exciting and so lovely. But it is also the process of taking something that you poured your heart into and handing it over to somebody else, knowing they have no obligation to you whatsoever to make you happy or stand by the things that you stand for. And I'm incredibly fortunate that I handed specifically Daisy Jones and the Six, which is about to finish shooting and will come out soon. I handed it over to people who got Got it and who valued the work that I had done and also knew how to round it out and make it deeper and three-dimensional. And so I don't expect that the experience that I've had on Daisy Jones is going to happen on every project. I know that you can't be that lucky, right? Sometimes you're going to hand it over to somebody who just doesn't quite get it the way you do or see it the way that you do. And then the work is going to stand for something that is different than what the book stands for. And that's okay. But on Daisy Jones, it's just been such a pleasure to read these scripts and to see dailies and go, oh, wow, did I make something that could be this good? And it's made me prouder of my book, which is to say I wasn't proud of my work. I was, but it allowed me an opportunity to just sort of be like, oh, OK, maybe this is why people like this book, because I love this show that it's becoming. And that's really lovely. But I do have to hand these things over with the expectation that that may not happen, that probably won't happen. And it doesn't mean that the show won't be good. 
It just means that it's different. And so I've done a lot of work in the past couple of years of explaining to myself time and again. And when I struggle with things, when my brain really struggles to understand something, one of the things I find is that I have to write myself a letter. There's a letter from me to me about like, hey, this is the challenge that's in front of you and here's what you need to do. Something in my brain processes that in a different way and I find a lot of strength with it. And I have over the years many times written myself a letter just saying, hey, this is not yours anymore. You chose the person and you handed it over and you have to let them do what they want to do with this and make their art with your art. I've compared it before of like writing a book is sort of like having a kid in that you do the best that you can. But then once you set it out into the world, you can't really control how people react to it. You have to relinquish control. And so I have just extended that metaphor by saying that I really think the adaptations are like your grandchildren, which is to say you didn't raise them. You don't have as much of a direct hand in it. You're just going to love them for the good parts and let go. And fortunately with Daisy Jones, I'm just so proud of it and proud of the work that everyone's done that I haven't had to have that conflict. Yeah, I love all of that. Writing yourself a letter. That is so good. I mean, it happens a lot of times with a lot of different things. I always say to young actors, there's always a balance between art and commerce that is the goal to try to achieve. You know, not everybody has the privilege of being able to balance art and commerce. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd be able to take some projects for the money, some projects for the art. If you get to do both of those things, that's a real privilege to be able to do. But that approach you know, having to be able to find balance. It must be really thrilling to see, especially Daisy Jones, if you're so excited about Yes. I come from casting, right? Like I started in casting and that wasn't just because that's the job I could get. That's because I really think that the actor that you cast in the part is going to make or break your piece, whether it's film or television. I truly believe that and I stand by that. Couldn't agree more. And so, you know, I was nervous when they were casting it. And it's so funny because we were like, oh, it's going to be relatively easy to find everybody, but Daisy's going to be impossible. And then, you know, Riley Keough shows up basically first thing and everyone's like, oh, it's Riley Keough. I remember getting an email that was like, hey, what do you think about Riley Keough as Daisy Jones? And I wrote back in all caps, fuck yes, with like 10 exclamation points. I was just so excited. And, you know, and it turned out the character that was really hard to cast was Billy Dunn, who's played by Sam Claflin. And it's so funny because looking at the dailies, you just go, oh, that's why it was hard to cast because everyone was waiting for Sam. We were just waiting for Sam to be part of this conversation. He is Billy Dunn. Riley Keough is Daisy Jones. And Cammy as Camila is just everything that you want in that part. There is a strength and a goodness to her and this sense of just she is formidable, that she is warm and she is good, but she is not to be messed with. The entire cast is just absolutely incredible. Suki Waterhouse is playing Karen. I'm obsessed with Suki. Her new album came out recently, and it is so good. My daughter and I can't stop listening to it. We're blessed with an incredible, incredible cast. Nice. I don't know if you know who Lily Donahue is. I don't. She's playing a smaller part. Wait, I just saw this. Yes. Yeah, I've tried to sort of mentor her, you know, walk her through the beginning stages of what a career in acting is. Try to teach her all the lessons that I had to learn the hard way, hopefully, yeah. that, you know, if she can avoid some potholes in the road. Yes. But anyway, she was like so excited to be a part of it. I love that. And I love that you're doing that because I think, you know, so often we're just sort of discouraged from doing that, from taking someone under our wing and really seeing them through and hoping that we can make the world a little bit easier 
for a fellow artist. And I love when women do that. And I think it makes all the difference. I would have loved it if I had had, you know, older actresses to help me to be able to call and say, you know, what do I do? This happened. You know, yeah. I've been in so many shitty situations or whatever. And it sometimes just helps to be able to have somebody on speed dial. Absolutely. You know, it's a unique position, right, that other people haven't been through before. There's this author, Adriana Trigiani, who has had just like massive hits and is such a talented writer. And I've gotten to know her in the past year. And she's just been so gracious and generous with her advice from being, you know, on the other side of having so many hits and she continues to have hits. And I know that I can call her and I can say, hey, what did you do when this happened? Or what should I do here? And she has just sort of taken me under her wing and believes in me and is the voice telling me I can do things when other people are telling me that that's not going to work. And she's the person who's encouraging me to expand what I'm doing. And I just can't tell you that faith from a woman who has been where you are, it makes a world of difference. Yeah, and it makes all your experiences feel like it's for something. Yeah. Like, I really love every time she calls me with a question or, you know, we have a conversation where I can impart some maybe at times annoying wisdom. Yeah. But it makes it all feel like, oh, you know, I went through this for a reason. Now someone else hopefully doesn't have to go through this. Yeah. It gives your experiences meaning selfishly. I feel that way. I don't know that she knows that she's such a mentor to me, but Jennifer Beals, who I met through Evelyn Hugo, she had read it and reached out to me and we were going to try to make something happen together. And there are just times, especially in Hollywood, where... You know, you're always just faced with these predicaments where you're like, how did I get myself into this? And I don't know what to do. And certainly as a woman, just always being underestimated. And how do I make people listen to me? And I know what we all need to do here. And nobody's giving me the opportunity to do it, you know. And in those moments, I find that I end up talking to Jennifer and I will ask her, you know, well, what do you do when you feel this way? And her advice is always like instantly impactful. Like, right. Why didn't I even ask you that? I should have known this in my gut. You're exactly right. She's always just pointing me toward, again, believing in myself and standing up for the things that I believe in. My career is different because of these women that I am able to ask their opinion and they take the time and help me for no other reason than just caring. Yeah. Debbie Allen is that person for me, too. I'm lucky enough to be able to get to work with her pretty much every day. And I think that feeling the impact that she's had on me, you know, sort of allows me to be able to have that impact on younger women. So it really is by example that is set for us that we learn how to carry that forward. Thank you so much, Taylor. This was so fun. Oh, no, thank you. This has been an absolute blast. I will never pass up an opportunity to talk to a fellow mass hole ever. So <laughs> I... <laughs> well, we're definitely got to come over and have a cup of tea. I would love that. I am ready. Okay. <laughs> Have a great weekend, Taylor. Thanks so much. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.